Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Alex Andreu is a political commentator. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Cosmic news this week. Boris Johnson has, <laughs> has vowed to turn global Britain into galactic Britain by becoming the first European country to launch a rocket into orbit with the construction of seven new spaceports. Is this just an opportunity for Chris Grayling to be the first man to fuck up transport in space as well, <laughs> as, well as on Earth? <laughs> Oh my God! They're going to put him in charge totally, aren't they? <laughs> you can see, it, you can see it happening. Yeah, look, I, I mean, in many ways, to comment on this is to give it more more credit than it deserves. In the forward to the plan written by Boris Johnson, he talks about watching Neil Armstrong when he was five, and how that made him want to be an astronaut. And <laughs> and I think that's very very telling, and it's very true to form. It's a it's a toddlerish ambition and so is the lack of plan you know he wants to turn global britain into galactic britain he says so i think it's fair to look at how his global britain um, (laughs) plan is going to get a taste and you know the truth is it it's not going well it depended entirely on Trump winning a second term, it seems to me. We turned our back to Europe to face the US, and the US has turned their back on us. What was more interesting is that uh, Science Minister George Freeman, on launching this initiative, said completely different stuff. He said he wants closer cooperation with the EU. He talked about associate membership of uh, Horizon and Copernicus programs, which was an offer at the time of the EU negotiations and was rejected sort of roundly end with with flair you know and instead we sunk half a billion in the ailing one web communications constellation which then turned out to be the wrong sort of satellites for a gps system so one pressing question is uh, will these rockets need fuel (laughs) (laughs) um look like i said uh i I, my my instinct is that this is another garden bridge another thames airport another bridge to ireland around about under the isle of man the route master bus and to talk about it today is meaningless because it will be nowhere to be seen in six months time Naomi Smith is chief exec at Best for Britain. In Brighton still? No, just back. Just back. What was the vibe like beside the seaside? I mean, I am so hungover right now from <laughs> the very evil wine uh, served at the mirror party that it's uh, it, it almost feels like a distant memory. Um, I would say the vibe was very mixed. There was a lot of infighting about internal democracy, among other things. A huge row over external democracy uh, and notably the PR motion, which the party didn't adopt. But we'll come on to that, I think, in a bit more detail later. We will, yeah. But there were plenty of things for, I think, internationalists to be broadly happy about in terms of the direction of travel on how Labour is beginning to talk about Europe and you know more and more of the big hitters within the PLP were talking positively about improving the deal. Yes, you know, there was the the line about not rowing back on the loss of freedom of movement. But in Starmer's speech, he said Johnson is finding out that it's not enough just to get Brexit done. You need to have a plan to make Brexit work, insinuating that Brexit isn't working, which I think is a nice callback to that 70 uh, 78 Tory attack ad against Labour. So yeah, pretty pretty mixed vibe. Um, some good, some bad. You chaired an event about the Tories' election bill uh, mm. at conference. Uh, who was involved and how did it go? 
So it was organized by TULO, which is the trade union labor organization. As regular listeners will know, the elections bill, if passed unamended, may mean that labor and the unions can't work together at election time. Um, so we were joined by Angela Rayner and she spoke very powerfully about how the unions you know, have helped to facilitate her political career. Kat Smith, who is leading on it for the shadow front bench in the Commons, was brilliant on the detail and what voters need to do to express their concerns to Parliament and to government. And we were also joined by Fleur Anderson, the MP for Putney, and of course was the only gain for Labour at the last election. And she was reminding us never to stop fighting to protect our democratic rights. If listeners missed the detailed, oh God, what else that Alex and I did on the bill, go and have a listen because um, there, there is a lot a lot in there that's wrong with it and it, it's worth listeners understanding it even though it's it's a bit technocratic. A more lively fringe uh, was the one that our guest on today's show and I did last night with Compass on a progressive alliance and it's worth checking that out on their Twitter feed too. Ah, the progressive alliance swear jar fills up <laughs> again. Um, well, yes, yeah, so let's meet this week's guest. Uh, also back from Brighton, the MP for Norwich South. He's a former TV reporter and infantry officer who served in various roles in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet and ran for the Labour leadership last year. Clive Lewis, welcome to the show. Wow, oh, hello. So polls vary, uh, but there was uh, a poll that came out during the conference conducted just before by Ipsos Mori, which had Labour up six points, three points behind the Tories. How much do you think the fuel crisis is, and we're going to talk about Keir Starmer's speech later and the sort of message, what he's saying about Johnson there. How, do you, how badly do you think the fuel crisis is affecting the government? I think it will have an effect. I think it begins to chip away and uh, play to this argument that uh, Boris Johnson and his government are incompetent. Um, but, I mean, I think we have to also remember that whilst it could be cumulative, uh, the, the, the Conservatives always have the... Um, the ability to be able to kind of and do it very well of, of executing the current incumbent and putting in someone else uh, with a kind of big big fat reset and and that's problematic and it's problematic for the Labour Party and I and obviously I was listening to Keir's speech you know Boris Johnson was very much and maybe we can come on to this a bit later very much kind of portrayed as the problem but if Boris Johnson goes then. Uh, you're, you're in with a new leader and and consequently they get a fresh start and people say, oh, well, we've got a new leader. They may well now be competent. And and that takes away from the actual underpinning structural problems, the institutional problems in this country, which create, um, you know, so many of the problems we've seen over the last 10 years. So I think it will have an impact, but I think it will be short term. And I think if they, uh, they can get it sorted out, it, it will fade uh, in the public's mind until the next disaster. Well, as, as Naomi mentioned, Starmer did mention Brexit uh, at one point in the speech. Do you think Na- Labour is nervous about blaming things like the fuel crisis, other, you know, Labour shortages and food shortages on Brexit? Is it still something post-2019 that, that nobody really wants to complain about too much? Yes, I think they are. And I mean, look, you can you, look, it's quite clear the Labour Party front bench strategy is uh, we have to win back the red wall. I don't like that term, but those foundation seats and win over Tory voters, many, not all, but many who will have voted for Brexit in the referendum. So you can see why they will be reluctant to try, because obviously this has been a disaster for the Labour Party in terms of its, it, it really split our electoral coalition straight down the middle. And so you can see why they would be reluctant and hesitant to do that. But there is a deeper analysis here, which isn't just about Brexit, which they could make. Maybe we can discuss that a little bit later. But um, ultimately, I think, yes, they are 
very reluctant to talk about this. And, uh, you know, clearly their strategy of winning over those voters, they think if they blame this on Brexit, which clearly a significant proportion of this problem is linked to Brexit. We, I don't think we can sit here and say all of it. Uh, I think there are other issues, but post-pandemic, COVID and other things in terms of uh, energy supplies and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, Brexit has a big part to play in it and not being able to pick that out in the government's handling of it and how they uh, delivered Brexit. And I think that's problematic for an opposition that, that actually wants to hold the government to account on the issues as they are. This week on the show, Keir Starmer addresses the faithful and the very much non-faithful at the Labour Party conference. Plus, coalition talks begin in Germany as Angela Merkel's reign comes to an end. Is the European centre-left mounting a comeback? And in the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers, Angela Rayner has labelled the Tories scum. How heated should political language get? First this week, Keir Starmer has faced his biggest crowd since being elected Labour leader in March 2020, addressing the party at their conference in Brighton. Naomi, Starmer spoke a few hours before this recording. Well, he started speaking a few hours before this recording, (laughs) shortly before. (laughs) Commentator Michael Savage said it echoed Wilson on modern tech, Kinnicom taking on the party, Blair on crime and education, and Brown on defending New Labour's record. Do you think, given the high stakes, that he did what he needed to do? So this was obviously Starmer's first in-person speech to his party since being elected leader, not this year, but last year. So he'd had a long wait for it. Um, and I'm going to be very interested to hear Clive's take. But I had I had pretty low expectations um, and desperately hoped he would pull it out of the bag. And I think he did. Um, it was a good speech. It was well delivered. Um, and I d- definitely don't care that it was very long because it was crafted with social media and news clips in mind. You know, the audience in the room are engaged political nerds who enjoy a long event. Um, you know, it's not boring to them. And the audience at home, who are not generally very interested in politics, are only going to hear short sound bites. And he was very careful to repeat the key messages throughout. There's been quite a bit of criticism over the, the current slogan of the party, Stronger future together um which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue but he was very clear in this speech to actually make the slogan work care equality security and and he repeated that he was authoritative he showed integrity but he also showed and we know that of him we we, you know that's his 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 stock and trade but he also showed that he can be funny and passionate and we rarely see that from him um he handled hecklers very well um he was saying oh at this time on wednesday it's usually the tories heckling me it doesn't bother me then doesn't bother me now um, and as someone that runs a pro-internationalism campaign the most heartwarming line for me was him saying it grieves me to see Britain isolated and irrelevant Labour is the party of NATO the party of international alliances so there was some uh, red meat for pro-Europeans internationalists and those that believe that we've got to be an outward looking country so I, I thought he nailed it actually. So Alex there were a lot of themes in there there were robots um <laughs> But one thing that he was obviously trying to set up is that this is a serious government in waiting, talks about getting your house in order, you know, winning power and being able to change people's lives for the better is what this party is for. He also seemed to expect hecklers. Did their intervention sort of end up helping him? make this point? Oh, completely. Like if you were if you were casting hecklers to look mad and unsympathetic, you couldn't have done better. Uh, And if you timed their interventions to be unsympathetic, you couldn't have done better. I mean, talk about heckling him when he was talking about 
his mother being in intensive care. I mean, I echo partly what Naomi says. I went into it with low expectations, and I thought he hit all the right notes. The hecklers looked mad. He looked assured and sympathetic. Obviously, we have to see what... Uh, how this is analyzed in the hours and days following how news organizations and uh, newspaper papers cover it in the in the coming days but i thought most important of all he created a really good narrative to sell on the doorstep you know the core of the message is that we want you to have a good job with a fair wage with a good school near a home you can afford and a, a health and social care that you can rely on. That is something that you can sell on the doorstep. And that is something that taps into all the areas that, you know, reasonable analysts expect to go wrong in the coming year for the Conservative government. Clive Lewis, Starmer's had a a rocky uh, relationship so far with the left of the party, including many people who, who voted for him for leader and now feel swindled, let down. What do you think that this speech uh, has done? Has it, has it changed the narrative at all? So the, so the first thing I think is interesting listening to this. It, I, 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 part of me despairs at the, the political culture that a speech, I understand it's a weather vane, I understand it, the, the role of the leader, but there is this kind of hype around the leader's speech, whoever they are, that somehow this is going to um, turn things around make a fundamental change, arm us on the doorstep. I, I, I think uh, let's just, rather than go into kind of my critique of leader speeches and the way that the political establishment in this country puts so much emphasis on them, I can say that on the surface of it, you know, the, the, the leader writers tomorrow will say he hit the notes, he hit the stride, he made some good jokes. There was a, you know, a confetti-style outpouring of policy within that. But do I think it will it will make a major change in, in where we are in the poll? Do I think he laid out a vision, a strategy to be able to win the next election? Well, I mean, Sir John Curtis explained to us uh, at, at conference in one of the fringes that we need a 12% poll lead to be able to have a majority of one at the next mm. election. Do I think this speech helped us to achieve a 12% poll lead? Okay. You know? <laughs> um, so so uh, there you go. It's a long-winded answer, but... Okay. Um, Alex, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves' speech on Monday managed to be praised by both the CBI and the Green Alliance think tank. Her centrepiece promise was £28 billion a year on tackling the climate crisis. Were you impressed by that offer and by um, her speech overall? Uh, Look, I'm no longer impressed by big amounts because everyone announces big amounts and you if you don't know what that means, if you don't know where it's going, if you don't know what it's going for, is it new money? Is it coming out of existing budget? We know that, you know, announcing a big amount is meaningless. What I am more impressed by was by the economic case put forward. And I think this is something that is a really positive track to be on. Rachel Reeves saying that we can spend this money now for the stuff that we need to do and have promised to do, or we can spend it in 10 years when it will cost double. 
That, to me, makes a, a, a solid economic argument for investing in green that I have not heard that much in the mainstream before. And I think it is an important point to be making. And let's get into the messy stuff uh, that happened earlier in the week in the land of rule changes. The leadership had to back down on replacing one member, one vote with an electoral college, but one on some other major changes, a new threshold of 20% of MPs to nominate a leadership candidate, uh, a simple majority for deselection trigger ballots, cutting the number of policy motions and abolishing registered supporters. (laughs) Will the leadership think that this sort of factional conflict was worth it in the end? Will they take that as as a win? Oh, um, part of me wants to say, who fucking cares? Another part of me doesn't want to say that, I won't. Um, (laughs) Look, all this stuff is quite esoteric. All I can go by is the fact that Starmer supporters seem to be much happier than the left of the party about what's happened. From that, I would guess that it was a success for Starmer's camp. But again, on a bird's eye sort of view, I I find what is more interesting is what it means, what it means to have fought this fight now. And I think it means Labour is preparing for a 2023 election. That's my big takeaway from that. So they don't want to be doing all this stuff in autumn 2022. They want to be announcing manifesto policies in autumn 2022. So they felt this had to be done now and be out of the way. Clive, under this new threshold, nobody except Starmer would have got on the ballot in 2020. Now, obviously, that threshold would have led to a sort of different approach from from candidates. Do you think a candidate from the party's left could still be a contender under these rules? I think that really does depend on the soft left of the party. It's quite clear that Starmer was elected from the soft left of the membership. I mean, there were a significant number of people who voted Corbyn twice, who I think uh, overwhelmingly voted for Starmer. Many of them voted for him. But there was also a big portion of the soft left that saw him as as, as, as having accepted many of the arguments made, started by Ed Miliband and then you know taken forward by John and Jeremy on the economy, on public ownership, on a Green New Deal, on many of those kind of key economic issues, political issues, I think there was a kind of broad consensus. And, and Keir, I think, himself was seen as part of, you know, accepting that. Um, and his 10 pledges seemed to accept that. And what you were getting was, in many ways, was kind of not a return to, to Blairism, but a kind of what you would call a, a sensible Corbynite policy platform with someone in a suit uh, who could sell it convincingly without scandal and without problems in the media. That's, that's how he portrayed himself. And I think he has shifted quite fundamentally from that to a kind of, as I think John MacDonald described, as a kind of a, a hackney new Labour uh, apparatchik of, of, of Tony Blair, however you want to describe him. But it's a kind of it's a it's a tribute band to new Labour, and and I and I think how the new, how the soft left reacts to this direction of travel, I think, will be really important. And if the soft left um, or a significant number of the soft left become increasingly upset at what they see as a heavy-handed approach. Uh, they're not happy with where they I mean, I think if we don't get the poll that we should in the next couple of months, there will be a slow panic that settles upon the PLP. Uh, and that will be problematic for Keir. And if that's problematic for Keir, it means that that then opens up the potential. I'm not saying for challenges, but it opens up the potential where some people will say, my God, we need to, get, we need to head in a different direction. And I think that opens up a possibility for the left to be able to get behind a single candidate, whether that's Sandy Burnham, that would be after the election, whether that's Angela Rayner or whether it's someone further to the left uh, is unclear. But it's quite clear to me that there was still the potential 
for more than one person to get on the ballot with the new changes that have taken place. John McDonnell, as you mentioned, has been very vocal in his opposition to Starmer recently. Andy McDonald resigned as Shadow Secretary of State for, for Employment. Now, those people are obviously unhappy when anti-Corbyn MPs cause trouble for, as they pointed out, the democ- democratically elected leader. Why is it sort of OK to do the same thing now? Is it just sort of uh, tit for tat? I, 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 it's not, look, I, the, one of the, <laughs> try not to, I try not, I try my hardest not to get dragged in. <laughs> That these in, in, these kind of this ongoing kind of family saga that, that is the Labour Party. It, it's frankly tiring, and I think most people, including members, feel that way as well. But there is a there is a history of the two extremes of our party: the the Labour right and the Labour left, who will tear chunks out of each other. And I'm afraid to say, given what I've seen the last five years, the Labour right are by far the more dedicated and I would say vicious uh, of the two, and ruthless. Um, that you would say, well, he would say that, but you know, the left didn't purge people from the party. I think if you think about what happened uh, back in 2016 in the chicken coup, then the, the, there was a mass shadow cabinet and front bench resignations. People shouting out about unity now, unity to win. Party unity is less important than winning the election. Well, they weren't saying that in 2016. So I think at the end of the day, it just feels, I think, to myself and many other people that when you're in the driving seat, then you know you then begin to dish out whatever it is that you want to dish out, and, and so I, I, I'm I'm tired of it. I would admit I'm extremely tired of it. I wish Keir had come in. I wish Keir didn't have to indulge in the displacement activity. It's quite clear that the last eighteen months or the last kind of six months or so have been very difficult for him. He's had to get rid of the team that he came in with. He's adopted a new team, a team uh, which includes Peter Manderson, people from the right, and they obviously have a playbook which is you can prove yourself as a leader by stamping down on the left of the party. It's an old tried and tested playbook and the public like it. And you look like a hard man, you look like a leader, you look like someone that will be ruthless and get the job done. And, you know, okay, is it going to work? Well, I don't think it does. And I think actually what it does, it shows the public that this is a party that isn't unified. It shows that this is a party that isn't ready for government. Uh, and But, you know, ultimately someone has told Keir that he has to kick the left to look like a leader. And, and I just think it was so unnecessary, especially where he'd come from and the platform he stood on. Um, if you think the left are what the, are, are the problem, why the party isn't winning, why the party, then, you know, you also have to also, I think, sometimes look at yourself, look at your policies, look at what you have and haven't done. There needed to be some soul searching from Keir on what he came into that job to do. And I don't think it's been very clear. Now we're beginning to see something, but I don't think he should be kicking the left simply because his platform that he came in on has been so weak. Um, and that's what it feels. It feels like a displacement activity. Naomi, the unions were the, were the baddies uh, in a motion to approve proportional representation, which, of course, uh, a huge involvement from Clive, which failed due to opposition from the unions, who were 95% against, while CLPs were 80% in favour. Why was there this split? I do have to give some honourable mentions to the unions that weren't. Um, so TSSA, Ardsleaf, Musicians Union and the now disaffiliated Bakers Union had all previously passed motions in favour of PR, but far too many of the unions, including my own GMB, voted against. And I was incredibly disappointed to hear GMB's Margaret Clark spreading misinformation about PR being, I think she called it, deeply unpopular um, when poll after poll proves differently. She was talking about the 2011 referendum on the alternative vote. Yes, and for a start, the 2011 referendum wasn't about PR. It was about AV, which 
which is not a proportionate system, uh, which meant that many reformers didn't engage with the referendum campaign at all because they, they didn't want it any more than they wanted first past the post. And also, um, you know, get keep your swear jar out. But uh, Nick Clegg fronted it, which is a death knell for any uh, election campaign um, and voters <laughs> up and down the country manage proportionate systems in the assembly in european elections in mayoral elections and it's frankly a disgrace uh, for those who allege to back minority rights to endorse a system that structurally favors the right um, well, another argument from people like Margaret Clark was that uh, it would be an admission that labor can't win a majority. Do you think it's something that should be admitted? Well, the Tories didn't win a majority of votes, and that's the point of pro-PR campaigns and, and well, the points that they make. We shouldn't live in a democracy where a government can be formed by a party that gets a minority of votes and ends up with this disproportionate majority of seats. Most developed democracies around the world have long since ditched first-past-the-post. It's only Britain and Belarus in Europe that still use it for national elections. And, and the choice is just so clear for Labour. They can either be the largest party in a coalition or almost all of the time, and actually implement socialist policies for the country, or they can languish in opposition almost all of the time under first-past-the-post. I think, you know, a a lot of the campaign at Labour Conference around PR and in the the run-up to it quite rightly tried to sort of separate the route to victory for Labour from the principal point of equal votes and why democratic equality is so important. Um, and Labour have got a good heritage on it. You know, they, they are the party that when in government brought those proportionate systems into different elections around the UK, going back as far as the 1970s in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, they are champions of equality and democratic equality has surely got to be the bedrock of that. So I think it's not an admission that you can't win under the current system. It's a a restatement of your values that you do not believe in concentrations of wealth in the economy and you do not believe in concentrations of power through a system that structurally favours a minority of voters that support right wing, the main right wing party, when so many of the left's votes are fractured across uh, a plural, you know, many different parties. I won't go into why going for a progressive alliance would be an admission of a guilt uh, that they can't win under under the first past the post system. But I do think it's important to keep those two points separate. Clive, you mentioned John Curtis's figure of a 12% lead, you know, among all the kind of analysis of Labour's problems, criticisms of particular leaders or policies, there's these huge structural problems, such as the loss of most of Scotland, concentration of votes in certain areas. Do you think parts of the party, presumably the people are voting against this, are sort of in denial about about how steep the challenge is under first past the post? I think, yes, I think partly denial, partly ignorance. Um, and, and ignorance in the in the, in the uh, honest sense of the word, in that they, they don't, they're not aware. I mean, if, when I speak to when I was speaking to CLPs, when I and I, I just I would usually have a small package of context setting kind of uh, facts that I would put out there. The fact that in the twentieth century, the Conservative Party, which is the most successful uh, political party in the world, or considered the most successful um, political party in the world, which the, by default makes us the most unsuccessful <laughs> opposition. <laughs> in the world, um, that the, they won by a, three times as many times as we did in the 20th century. People go, well, hold on a second, we, 1940, no, they won three times as much. And it's like, shit, did they? Right, okay. And, and so when you begin to explain to people the uphill struggle that we have always had, and that actually we, we, we have almost become 
the official, Her Majesty's official opposition permanently, or most of the time. Uh, you begin to see that in a way uh, where Labour inhabits in this first past the post system, it inhabits kind of the second place on, the, on, a two, on a two platform podium. And it looks at the Green Party, the Liberal Democrats, and it looks at them and not even on the podium. And it thinks, you know, I think we've got the trappings of power without actually having that much power. And I think many think, but I prefer that than <laughs> to have nothing. But it's a, limit, it's a limitation on imagination that actually there could be a different way of doing politics, a different way of having elections in this country where everyone's vote mattered rather than the million or a million and a half people in a swing seat that did. And, and the way that, that that concentration of voters can then be manipulated by the media, by others. So I, I think, and, and distort the political conversation on the issues that we really do need to discuss. So I think, yes, there is an element of that, of, of, uh, of people wanting to deny that reality. And I think also when you think about the uphill struggle we're facing now with the breakup of Britain, you know, the breakup of Britain is happening, whether we like it or not. You know, the, the raison d'etre for the United Kingdom was an imperial project. You know, you needed to have that critical mass in land mass, resources, people power to run the empire, to win the empire. The empire physically now has gone. And Brexit, if you want, I'm sure it's been described on your show before, as a kind of a post-imperial tantrum in this country. And that has but not by design, but it has acted well, the outcome of that with Scotland voting to stay inside the European Union has seen, I think, the breakup of Britain kind of been put on rocket boosters. The SNP are not going anywhere. They're offering what they're offering to the people of Scotland is something that Labour will never be able to replicate whilst it has this kind of unionist first past the post mindset. I think ultimately, once people begin to understand the the fact that it isn't about how electable your leader is or how great your policies are or how your front bench sells them. Uh, it's, it goes deeper than that. And as you said, it's structural. And part of that, I mean, is about the break of Britain. I think the other part as well is the fact that 40 years of uh, economic uh, deregulation and, if you want, for want of a better phrase, neoliberalism. So you've got a big section of the working class now, which is never, I mean, the high watermark of, of, of working class voters voting for Labour was in 1951, and it was for, we, we got 48% of the working class vote. 48%. What about the other 52%? Um, they just they weren't voting Labour. So, you know, and it's just basically gone further and further down. We hemorrhaged 3 million in the Blair years. And now we're at a point where so many of those people own their own home, they have a pension or a triple lot pension, and they're thinking, this is a government that isn't going to take money from the super rich. It's going to be up to me to either look after myself in old age or to look after or hand something on to my children. I need to hoard these assets. I need to look after myself and what I have. And therefore, their interest now lies, uh, is the same interest uh, as capital. Uh, and the party of capital, who will always be able to outflank Labour on that issue, is the Conservative Party. And this is a big problem for us. So yes, we can come up with policies which can kind of try and maybe chip away at that, maybe universal, more policies are universal uh, policies on universal benefits and so on. But ultimately, in the timescales we're talking, you know, with the climate crisis unfolding at the rate of knots it is and the breakup of Britain taking place before our very eyes, I think the Labour Party really does have to wake up to the fact that the, the voting system is just one element which has got a system stacked against us being able to win power. And even when we do win power, we win power on, in, in such a way that we limit and constrain ourselves to what it is we're able to do in terms of a transformative approach. And I'll finish by saying, you know, I look at the achievements of the last Labour government over those 12 years. They were wiped out 
within five years, in part because there was no constitutional basis uh, to hold on to so much of what the Labour Party had done. It was just wiped away by the coalition, um, sure start centres and so much more. And I think the Labour Party has to understand if it wants to have lasting change in this country, then it's going to need to have democratic reform at the very heart of, uh, of, its, of its next uh, chance when it comes into government, if it comes into government. Uh, and I just want to wrap up this conference bit. Big question, but, but, but phrased simply. Is there any leader that you can imagine coming next who could unite the party as it is now? Or is it, are we doomed to sort of have one part of the party in the driving seat and the other part sort of noisily kicking them in the back? I think the, 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 the King of the North is someone that people often look to. Andy Burnham is uh, meant to have been on a journey. And, I, and I'm going to say, you know, I, I, I don't know whether it's possible and it would depend on what someone like Andy Burnham, um, let's just say Andy Burnham was leader of the Labour Party and he came in on a kind of softish left policy platform. I think it's entirely possible if he was prepared to tackle some of the juicier issues like electoral reform. We know that he's now moved into position on PR. We know that he believes in a four-day week. We know that he believes in public ownership of transport. We, so I think that in many ways, he kind of inhabits the, the space that Keir Starmer inhabited when he, he ran for leader. And I think, it, I think ultimately that is something that someone who could potentially unite the party. If Andy Burnham, I, I think the problem, I think the fear someone like myself has with Andy Burnham is that he has been known as a flip-flopper, not having uh, strong views any one way or the other. But I think people have been impressed with him, have been impressed with the journey he's been on. If he was to come back in here, I think the fear could be that it's like an alcoholic in the bar. Would he come back into Westminster and then and then slowly slip back into those ways where, well, only this is possible and we won't be able to do that and this isn't going to be... So I, I think, you know, on the surface of it, someone like Andy Burnham, if they were brave and bold, uh, and we're prepared to make some kind of major fundamental changes uh, in terms of uh, how we as a party operate and that democratic deficit and the, the crisis of democracy. I think he could do very well. Um, but, you know, aside from that, you know, I should also be able to name a woman. Uh, I would love to be able to name a woman in the party that could do that as well. But, you know, at the moment, Andy Burnham is one of those names that, that swims around um, quite frequently. <laughs> Next up, the German election results are in. Olaf Scholz's SPD narrowly beat Armin Laschet's CDU, which had the worst result in its history after 16 years of Angela Merkel. In third and fourth place were the Greens and the Liberal FDP, followed by the far-right AFD and left-wing Die Linke. In order to become Chancellor, Scholz must negotiate a coalition, probably involving the Greens and FDP, in what is now effectively a six-party system. Alex, uh, two years ago, the SPD were a poor third, going as low as 11% in the polls and sort of a reluctant poster boys for the plight of the centre-left in Europe. Even earlier in the year, the CDU had a massive lead. Uh, now, Schultz is hardly a Catherine Wheel of charisma. So <laughs> how did he turn it around? OK, so there are a number of factors that play into this. The first and most important one is that the CDU's issue uh, were in, in a grand coalition with the SPD. So uh, Schultz was actually vice-chancellor to Angela Merkel, and he was also finance minister. And the pandemic has been good for Finmins. Look at Sunak. Imagine the person handing out cash for the last 18 months was Starmer. 
that's the sort of scenario that you had in Germany, effectively. You know, he was in the position where he was doling out the furlough payments and the, you know, all of that stuff. So that's a big, big factor. I think the second big factor is that the centre-right candidate, Armin Laschet, and the Greens and Elena Baerbock didn't have good campaigns. I think that's fair to say. The final factor is that Afghanistan became quite a central issue during the campaign because of its timing. And so there was an unusual focus on foreign policy. And Schultz was much more trusted than both of the others on foreign policy by a lot of points, by sort of two-digit numbers. And so I think all these things came together and shot the SPD up the polling. But the important thing, I think, to take away from it that applies to a British reality as well is that sometimes, and no pun intended, but it is all about building momentum. There is something particular psychologically about someone who is gathering momentum and is beginning to be seen as the next leader of a country. And when that thing gets going, it's actually very difficult to stop. The AFD is effectively a regional party now concentrated in the centre-east, but it hasn't faded away as you would like uh, fascists Mm. to fade away. Mm. Um, So even though they haven't done well, is it now a sign that they've been normalised? as part of German politics? I mean, I think the reason they're doing well in certain places and not well in others is for the same reason far-right populists are doing quite well in some former Eastern Bloc countries. So Saxony is formerly East Germany, where which is the AFD's stronghold. Their performance there can in, in, in part be seen as a reaction to the imposition of a sort of westernization, the fusion of capitalism and democracy after 1989. You know, and for many East Germans, this shift was actually associated with deprivation and social disintegration and the, and the loss of their political home, especially on social issues. Former East Germans are much more conservative than West Germans. And so I think that's where it does well. And for the flip reasons is precisely why it doesn't do well elsewhere. Naomi, we're not going to do a, a kind of big post-mortem on Merkel, but I was struck that one German journalist described her style as radically reactive. She she made bold moves sometimes, but only in times of crisis. Mm. Do you think overall her premiership exposed the limits of sort of caution and consensus and sort of technocracy in a period that increasingly required more energy and vision and, and really big moves on issues such as climate and digitalization? I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, an area where legitimate criticism can be levelled at her is on insufficient interventions to tackle the climate crisis. But I think broadly otherwise, and I say this as a pluralist, I see her legacy as one that provides a, a kind of good template of nurturing and holding together coalitions, whether they are in her own party her own government or across the EU. You know, we were, as pro-Europeans, sort of grateful for her calm and uh, stoicism during during a lot of the past few years. As a Greek, can I slightly disagree with that? She gave us an absolute fucking kicking during the Eurozone crisis. Having said that, I think her legacy is Germany taking taking in a million refugees. Uh, I, I think that is a move of such bravery that it is completely 
unreplicated in modern politics and will I will forever be grateful to her for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Sh- uh, Naomi, Schultz is even less of a fan of Brexit and Boris Johnson than, than Merkel was. Now, it's not guaranteed it'll become Chancellor. Coalition talks could collapse. The CDU could maybe pull something together. But if he does mm-hmm. become Chancellor, do you expect a tense relationship? Well, so he's he's a social liberal. And so Schultz's politics are a long way from being those of a Brexiteer conservative. And he's pulled no punches in, in blaming the idiocy of Brexit for our current shortages plight here in the UK. But I suppose Germans are nothing if not pragmatic. So while relations are, are probably unlikely to be, you know, very, very warm and cosy, they'll be sufficiently perfunctory and from the German side at least grown up. As you've mentioned, maybe maybe talks will collapse. I'm definitely not the right person to forecast that. I'm not an expert on German politics, but it's my understanding that the CDU would have to move very quickly now to signal to the FDP and the Greens that they actually want power. But at the moment, they seem to be in in leadership leadership tussles, um, which will be a distraction from that. So from a layman's perspective, I think that probably is looking unlikely. The one thing I do want to note, though, is that Schultz has pledged to have formed a new government by Christmas. Um, And as we're recording this, we are still just in September. That's important for people to realise that is how coalition talks happen in a steady and very thorough Mm. way and not rush through in a couple of days to get that rose garden backslapping photo shoot ready. <laughs> um, Clive, Lisa and Andy said at conference that Labour should take heart from the result. Um, I was struck by a, an observation by New Statesman's Jeremy Cliff that Schultz's big idea is, quote, to restore social democracy as a bridge between middle-class progressives, the old working class, and the emergent precariat. That means combining a third-way affinity for what works with a theory of social justice that goes beyond just social mobility. So do you think... Labour can learn anything from the SPD's comeback or are the circumstances just too specific to Germany? If we had PR, then yes, I think you could. Um, but we, that's, that, no, no, that, that door, whilst it's been slammed shut this week, it's, it's, it obviously hopefully hasn't permanently. But I mean, I think it, if you look at the kind of, there's obviously talk of resurgence of, of social democratic parties um, and their demise or decline over the last, the pacification of social democracy over the last 10 or 15 years. But I kind of think if you look at the trends, so small parties are getting bigger and the big kind of traditional mainstream parties of government, um, which kind of used to you know, reliably win around 40% of the vote, now struggle to pass 20% or so. And, and whilst we in the Labour Party aren't there yet, we are in many ways held together as an electoral coalition in, in England for now, um, although shrinking um, under first past the post you can see that that trend is affecting us. You know, we've got the Greens on 9 or 10% now regularly, with the Liberal Democrats not far off that. The smaller parties tend to be doing better, and there are lots of reasons for that. But when you throw in the fact that uh, you've got the fragmentation of, of the United Kingdom as, as represented by the Nationalist parties in Wales and Scotland, that's extremely problematic for a party that has always, you know, one power through as a party of the United Kingdom, partly you know, through Scotland and, and normally through Wales too. So I, I th- it would be nice to be able to take heart, but I think without that proportionality in the system, then all we are going to see is an increasing number of competing political parties basically trying to, 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 be, to basically inhabit the same political space. The Liberal Democrats have clearly moved to the left 
uh, from their time in coalition. The Greens naturally now inhabit that space. In fact, I think both the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party are looking at them with great, more and more trepidation as each month goes by. I know they worry my own party hierarchy because they are the difference, you know, in many cases between us holding on to seats or gaining seats and not. Uh, and when you're in a situation we are, that's deeply problematic. So I think Labour can learn a lot from what the SPD has done, but I don't necessarily think it's going to convert into us winning outright um, and forming a Labour government on its own. I think that is problematic unless the Labour Party adopts a perfectly rational strategy of saying, how do we form a progressive alliance as opposed to the current regressive alliance that the Tories have managed to cobble together? Well, these results are a hell of an advertisement for PR because I noticed that older voters still favour the big two, but most under 30s went for either the Greens or the FDP. So you get um, a situation where a lot more people's votes matter. Another sort of advertisement for PR is that SPD and Dilinka are quite, you know, they're distinct parties. They represent groups that are currently in the Labour Party. Do you think that Labour is a party that is currently only held together by first past the post, and that they could re- people could be would be a lot happier if there was an SPD and a Dilinka. God I knows. Do why, <laughs> I do wonder why the Baker's back PR, but um, no, I'm being naughty there. I mean, uh, they, they, I, there's lots of reasons why they they back PR. I, I think you can look at a country like New Zealand, where the Labour Party there adopted PR and pretty much stayed cohesive, stayed together. It's, it's one of two big parties over in New Zealand. So it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to split. I think the other thing as well, in terms of if there was a political realignment in this country, um, one of the things I would say to members, and it would often come up for members when we discuss PI, is will the Labour Party break apart? It's like, A, not necessarily, but B, if there is a political realignment, which PR can induce, it would happen across politics. It wouldn't just be the Labour Party, it would also be the Conservative Party as well. It would, it would happen, it would happen, the Greens as well, because, because there are, I think it's, people see these kind of tight boundaries around each political party, but actually it's a series of overlapping Venn diagrams. And that would shift. People would find, well, most of my Venn diagrams here, I'm, I'm now, you know, but actually I was in this party because this was where I had the best chance of, of getting, uh, you know, seeing policies that I believe in, but now I can go to this party because actually this is where I'm happier. But, you know, ultimately, uh, I don't think we should be afraid of that. Someone made a really, really good point at the Compass uh, rally the other day. And he said, I've been in a Labour Party all my life. The Labour Party has done so much for me, both in terms of being in government, in terms of what it's given me. But he said, I'm a Democrat first. And, I, you know, I'm not going to allow the name of the Labour Party to hold back from what is, a, is, is right democratically. I thought it was a very brave thing to say. But ultimately, I don't think the Labour Party has break up. Well, the last thing I will say on this, though, is I think there's a reason why bureaucracies, whether the leadership bureaucracy inside the Labour Party or the leadership that Lotto and, and those around that, or trade union bureaucracies, is that first past the post gives them power. It, it, it disciplines members. It disciplines voters. It basically says, if you don't do as we say, if you move beyond what we say, if you don't get behind and get with the programme, the Tories will win. Uh, and I think that's quite a powerful stick to beat people. And I don't think those who want to control uh, the Labour Party or control their trade union bureaucracy, letting go of that power, the power they have uh, under first party votes, isn't something they're, they're, it's something they're reluctant to do. 
Alex, finally, in the Norwegian elections a couple of weeks ago, Labour ousted the Conservative Prime Minister. What a, what a lovely sentence that is. <laughs> um, and the right-wing populist party also lost ground. It looks like the far right will fall back in the Czech Republic and Bulgaria before the mm. end of the year. But in France, Marine Le Pen is close behind Macron in the polls uh, in advance of another election year. I mean, can we say that the sort of Eurosceptic anti-immigrant populists are in retreat or does it very much depend on, on which part of the map you're looking at? Look, very quickly. So a huge number of caveats, of course, because every country has particular uh, factors. For for instance, in Norway, the, the Fremskrit Partiet was caught in a weird pincer movement. Norway is a very rationalist society. The anti-vax bandwagon was not particularly um, a fruitful one to jump on there. They'd been in coalition with the centre-right, which uh, pinched a lot of their less mad ideas. There was less bite to their anti-migrant rhetoric because the pandemic reduced uh, population movement to such an extent. But to answer your your uh, overarching question, yes, I think the far right is in retreat. Brexit has been a big factor. Anti-EU parties are not doing well. European papers are full of photos of empty shelves and petrol queues. Whether that's a fair criticism on Brexit or not is a completely different question. But the point is that's what people are seeing as the result of anti-European policies. But also, I think, post-pandemic, it, it feels like people people found a need for seriousness. And I think that's what is more interesting both in the German election context and in the UK context. You know, many people refer to the SPD doing well as a rejection of Merkel. It's the opposite, I think. It's a validation of Merkel because temperamentally, Schultz is closest to her steady-as-she-goes sort of personality. And I think that's where Starmer can do well as well. I think that's why in the conference he set, he set up the battle to come very, very well as Johnson being a flim-flam merchant of no substance and him being a much more serious person of substance. I think do, you genuinely, do you genuinely believe that? Do you genuinely believe that, that, that Boris Johnson is this? I think, I think actually, he's a fan, you know, a fantastic operator for his class he, and the kind of the what you would call kind of the, the rise of neoliberalism and, and the state handouts to large corporate I, I I don't see him as a buffoon I, I, think I, I agree I'm not making a value judgment on mm. whether he is that or whether it's a carefully constructed persona all I'm saying is that that is the particular you know donkey that he rode into government and it's very difficult to get off that now and pretend he's a very serious person and I think there is a switch to public mood across the world for a little bit more seriousness because the experience of the pandemic has been a sobering one. Uh, can, can I just come in on that if that's possible? I mean, I, I think this is really important. It's one of the things in the speech that really did get to me, which was, I think, you know, calling putting Boris Johnson at all and so on and, and making him out to be a buffoon. I think what it does, it distracts from actually being able to see the ability of the Conservative Party to kind of almost invisibly, the way it controls the state, the way that there's a lack of transparency, a lack of democracy, a lack of basic rights in this country, especially now we've left the European Union. Uh, and and they are rolling back in an authoritarian way our democratic rights in this country at a staggeringly terrifying scale and pace. And I think to present this government as incompetent plodders, yes, the system, systemically, uh, many of the institutions are failing, 
But that's in part a function of, um, and I think there was little analysis of this in Keir's speech, of the, of the democratic deficit at the heart of this country, which has now been expounded by Brexit. Put this on Boris Johnson's head and his incompetence takes away from the deeper structural issues which are causing this. I think that's a missed opportunity at best for a Labour leader who wants to be radical, who doesn't want to spend lots of money uh, necessarily, but wants to be able to say, I can be radical, I can be different, and I would empower you, I will really take back control, but for the British people. Uh, and, and I think that's a missed opportunity from the Labour leadership. It's basically want to play on the rules that the Tories are setting out uh, constitutionally and democratically and institutionally in this country. And, and that's, a, I think that's a failing. Well, in the extra bit, we will be talking about the sort of the, the best attack lines on the, on the Tories and whether to call them fools or bastards. <laughs> Now, there's no time for but your emails this week, I'm afraid, because of all the conference chat. But there is time for overrated, underrated, where we sort the deep cuts from the one hit wonders. This week, it's Clive Lewis's turn. Clive, what do you have for us? Um, I think overrated is net zero uh, and underrated is a genuine Green New Deal. So, I mean, that was uh, that was the best I could come up with. But why is net zero uh, overrated? I think it's I think it's one of those um, those terms now which have have found their way into the political lexicon. But actually, I'm not sure everyone really understands just how poor a measure and basically how bad net zero is. So, so a big chunk of net zero is reliant on negative emissions technologies. Uh, if you look at the uh, Climate Change Committee and uh, the carbon budgets and what they think is our fair share uh, of decarbonisation and the rate of it, first of all, it's awful in terms of how much of a share of the global carbon budget we think we should have. It's, it's very unjust compared to other countries. Mm. Secondly, negative emission technologies that are required. I mean, the scale of these uh, negative emission technologies is unprecedented. I mean, we are seeing some of these programs take off around the world, but the scale that's required is basically unbelievable. And so we're basically saying we're going to carry on pumping billions of tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere into 2050 and beyond because of aviation, uh, which will carry on pumping out carbon and hope that our children and grandchildren can develop technology to suck it out of the of the atmosphere. And, and I think that's frankly terrifying. So when people talk about net zero, that's in effect what they're talking about. And I, and I think it's it's something that needs to be unpacked and unpicked. So I think overrated when we start talking about net zero oh. in 2050. Well, thank you for the most chilling overrated, <laughs> underrated to date. <laughs> And that's the show. Thanks to Naomi. Thanks very much. To Alex. Thank you. And to our guest, Clive Lewis. Thank you. Stay tuned for our extra bit for patrons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a hearty thanks to our latest backers. Big hello from me to Nicole Curtis, James Behag, Andrew Sunderland, Brendan Campbell, Anu Ralan, Keith McMurray and Sashan Pande. And a big shout out from me to Sophie Smith, and if that's my cousin, hello Sophie, love you lots, Caroline Morgan, John Park, Al, John and Jerry sharing a Patreon there, Ifat Kawaja, James Pickering and Robert Edwards. And thanks from me to James Hartley, Nigel Stevens, Tom Clayton, Kerry Hamblin, John Stables, Felicity Carroll and Michael. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. He's back in the building. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. 
Art Direction by Mark Taylor, Oh God, What Now, is a Podmasters production. This week on The Extra Bit, Angela Rayner got into hot water by telling a conference reception, quote, we cannot get any worse than a bunch of scum, homophobic, racist, misogynistic, absolute vile, banana republic, vile, nasty, Etonian piece of scum. Uh, various politicians were asked about it, uh, late politicians, some, including Starmer, Nandy uh, and Emily Thornbury, said they wouldn't have used those words, but David Lammy defended her fruity remarks. Alec, simple question, was she right to say it? Um, I, I don't think it's up to me to police what Angela Rayner says is the simple answer. I think there's a, a very middle-class tendency to demand elegant put-downs rather than direct language. I think that feeds into all sorts of education, class and gender issues. Anger is, is generally speaking seen as an irrational emotion. I don't think it is. Aristotle doesn't think it is. It ties directly to Victorian attitudes oh. designed to subjugate working class people and women. Um, w- we effectively have to talk politics using conservatives' language. In a sort of dual, we are always made to choose the rapier. It's not necessarily the language I would use, I can say that, but I think, you know, she's a northern woman expressing herself how she thinks uh, is best, and I think what she said will echo with a lot of voters. Okay, so I, I like Angela Rayner. The problem I have with scum is that it's essentially much like sort of vermin and so on. It, it de, it is de, it's dehumanising language. And I would rather she'd called him probably a word that I wouldn't, shouldn't say on the podcast. But, but there, there, there are many more uh, kind of colourfully abusive terms that mm-hmm. perhaps that I would probably heartily endorse. And I just wondered whether there was any particular issue but with that one because of its history. Okay, dehumanising for whom? Who, is she dehumanising the Conservative government by calling them scum? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm talking about the history of the word and the way that it has been used. Well, because she didn't use it for, you know, Conservative voters. She used it very specifically for a government that whose policies have been incredibly inhuman. I mean, they've been fatal to tens of thousands of people. I just have an aversion to this sort of pearl clutching every time someone says something that is... And that was a trailer for the bonus Fringe event in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more of God What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. It really does help us to keep going. And don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else? out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.